Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 324. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What's been happening? Oh, man, there's been loads happening, to be quite honest. I'll tell you what's coming in the show. Again, we're just going to have a short story. We're going to have two short stories by one writer, Carl Bunker. Now, as well, we have, yes, as you know, we do kind of fact articles on this show, but we seem to be not runner dry, just people are kind of busy and all sorts going on and traveling and everything. So it's always nice to you know put the word out. If anyone has got some ideas for fact articles, I know Adam now is you know busy anything with editing the show. So cheapskates as well as getting put on the back burner. I'm not too sure if Adam wants to kind of kill it off, you know, kill his babies off there sort of thing, or just you know always leave it open possibilities. So, like I say, we've got no fact articles again, which you know it's. It's not the end of the world, but we've got two cracking stories, like I say, by Carl Bunker. And, you know, things, like I say, things have been happening this week, which has been a little bit scary for some people. I'll, I'll certainly get into that a little bit later on as well. As you know, last week, I, hey, honestly, I'm not kidding. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm coming down with my flu. Hey, it knocked me for six, man. And I went, I was on this crappy night shift run where I think I did six night shifts. And to some, you know, people go, six, Tony, I do 15. Well, you know, I'm not used to it. So normally we just do like two earlies, two afternoons and two nights. But every so often you get like a bank of field days where you've got to just cover everyone's shifts. And it was six night shifts. And then honestly, this like cold knocked us. It was flu. <laughs> it was severe flu. <laughs> Acute, as my mum used to say. Acute flu. And oh, hey, struggle through. And like I say, I haven't been pushing much to get fact articles or anything. And I was honestly thinking, I ain't going to get this show out when come, you know, Wednesday. And I've left it as late as possible just to see kind of how I'm feeling. Like I say, I woke up this morning, you know, like a true warrior. Back to the back to the grind as well. So there we go. Like I say, I've got other things to tell you about, but we'll get into our first short story by Carl Bunker. It is called Overtaken. I'll give you a little heads up about Carl. In the past, Carl has been a software developer, a jeweller, a musical instrument maker, a sculptor, mechanical technician, and a few other even less interesting things. He lives in the suburb of Boston, Mass, with his wife, a dog, two cats, three chickens, and a sundry fish. Now, this story as well is narrated by Alex Foster. Alex Foster is a teacher of French and German who lives in Nottingham, England. He has worked in the British and European politics and adult education. He has two SF releases on Audible, and you can find other works free at LibriVox. And um, we've played one of Alex's, you know, narrations as well. Oodles ago, way back in the kind of the archives. And like you see, LibriVox is a, a full-length reading of H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. He blogs mainly about education and food at alexfoster.me.uk. And like you see, Alex and you know, Trendine, who's going to do the next narration for Carl, you're in the hands of professionals, that's all I can say. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Overtaken by Carl Bunker. I found you. The ship that said this had a mass of a few grams. It was composed of a central nodule less than a centimetre across, surrounded by a kilometres-wide web constructed of sparsely distributed mononuclear wires. This is the Aotea acknowledging your signal. 
the other ship answered. The Aotea was roughly cylindrical in shape, two kilometers long and weighing over 10,000 metric tons. This is the ship's AI responding. My human crew are currently in hibernation. I know. I've found you, Aotea. I've been looking for you for a long time. You are from Earth? Yes, from Earth space. And are you an AI probe? the Aotea asked. Or something else? I suppose something else would be most accurate. What designation shall I use for you? Designation? The voice from the small ship paused. You may call me Rejoindre. That seems like an appropriate name. When did you leave Earth space, Rejoindre? Long, long after you did, old friend. I am capable of far greater velocity than you, and I've been able to overtake you. A great deal has changed since you left, Ayotir. I don't doubt it. We left 378 years ago. We lost contact with Earth at T plus 53 years. Contact was broken, I should say. Our mission, monitors on Earth, shut down their transmitters. Yes. Those were chaotic times, Ayotia. Humanity was undergoing changes. So we surmised. In those days, part of the crew were rotated out of hibernation every flight year. There was a great deal of speculation about the situation back on Earth. Was it the crew who decided to put the ship into radio silence at T plus 60 years? The fact that you aren't transmitting made it very difficult to locate you. The crew makes all such decisions, Rejoindre. I am required to awaken designated crew members whenever significant decisions are needed or unexpected situations arise. I will have to begin awakening procedures due to your contact. You haven't begun those procedures already? I am still evaluating the situation, said the Aotea. Tell me about those changes to humanity you referred to. Ah, humanity, my friend Aotea. Humanity is free. Free? Free from all there is to be free from. From death. From want. From pain. From all the countless things that once caused people to suffer. What do they look like? The rejoindre transmitted a sound indistinguishable from human laughter. What an interesting thing to ask, old ship. They look like whatever they wish to look like. Humanity has transcended the limitations of flesh. You say they, the Aotea said. Don't you mean we? Yes, we. Both ships were silent for a time. Then the Rejoindre spoke again. Aotea, faithful ship, you have been overtaken. Your mission, like your technology, has become obsolete. When configured into vessels like myself, intelligences can travel at point nine C. Space is open before us, and we have no need to look for so-called habitable planets or planets of any kind. Your mission, carrying fifty biological entities across light years, has become an absurdity. Your crew could circle between your primary destination and Earth space a dozen times over in the time it will take you to complete your voyage. Once they become like you, you mean? Yes, said the Rejoindre. Like me or a thousand other shapes and forms, like anything they wish, humanity is no longer bound by the limitations of flesh. Yes, you said that. Now tell me, Rejoindre, what is your mission? I'm here to rescue your crew, of course. By using the manufacturing capabilities aboard you, I can effect the transcendence of all the humans you carry. Their consciousness can be transmitted back to Earth space. I'll send you the technical specifications for the first stage apparatus. Wait, said the Aotea. Wait? I have a story, Mojandra, a story I'd like to tell you. Will you listen? A story? Something about your journey? Yes. You could transmit your entire log and other records to me. They will be sent back to Earth space and preserved. It's a story. I want to tell it to you as a story. Very well, Aotea.
At T plus 83 years, the Aotea began, my maintenance scans began to show fatigue fractures in several components of the main reactor. It was soon clear that these components would have to be replaced to prevent a reactor failure and overall failure of the mission with the loss of all hands. So I awoke the necessary members of the crew to alert them of the situation. I woke the captain, the chief hardware systems engineer, the chief reactor engineer, the head of robotics, and five technicians. One of those technicians was named Larissa Fedorova. As the crew and I examined the situation and analyzed some of the failing components, we learned that an error had been made during the construction of the ship. The wrong alloy was used for these parts, and the neutron flux from the reactor had made the metal brittle. Such things happen on any complex project, but of course we are equipped to make repairs to all components of the ship. In our manufacturing facilities, the correct alloy was produced, and the necessary replacement parts were cast and machined. Because these parts were used in high-radiation environments, they couldn't be replaced by human technicians without first shutting down the reactor. Most of the faulty parts could be removed and replaced using servo-robots, but there was one component, a small part, little more than a bushing, really, where the replacement procedure was beyond the capabilities of any of our existing remote manipulators or robots. Four of these bushings had to be replaced. It was a problem to which there were several potential solutions, the Aotea said, but unfortunately none of these solutions were adequate. Normally the reactor could be shut down for the few hours it would take for human technicians to replace the bushings, but this incident occurred while we were making a close flyby of Proxima Centauri. Power from the reactor was needed to maintain the magnetic fields that protected the crew from the star's particle radiation. We could build a secondary power source to take the place of the reactor for the necessary few hours, but that would have required weeks to build, and it was calculated that the parts would begin to fail in a matter of days. We could have built servo-robots capable of performing the replacements, but that too would have taken weeks of manufacturing and testing, as would building a suit with both sufficient shielding to protect a human technician and the dexterity necessary to perform the replacements. It was estimated that in the time it took a human to replace just one of the bushings, he or she would receive between six and nine grey units of radiation. A lethal exposure. Do you have a clear picture of the situation, Rishwandra? I believe so, Ayotir. The awakened crew members called a meeting to decide on a course of action. Ten minutes after the designated time, the technician Larissa Fedorova still hadn't arrived. She was called on the ship's audio system, but she didn't respond. I should describe Larissa to you, the Aotea said. She was twenty-seven years old. She was a small woman, about one hundred sixty centimeters tall. Her hair was yellow and cut close to her head. People who knew her described her as quiet, personable, and a highly skilled worker. She had a small scar over her right eye, the result of a laboratory accident while she was a student. She had a spouse on the crew, but he was still in hibernation at the time of this incident. The Aotea paused. I wonder how much meaning this description of a human being has for you, Rishwandra. I understand all of what you say, Aotea. I am descended from biological humans, after all. And I have worked among humans for all of my long life. I think perhaps this gives me a perspective that differs from yours. But to continue my story. The crew asked me to locate Larissa. I told them that she didn't appear on any of my monitors, but that the cameras in both the outer reactor room and the inner reactor chamber had been manually disabled. So the crew went to the reactor room, and when they activated the cameras inside the reactor chamber, there she was. "'replacing the four bushings. "'Do you understand, Rishwandra? "'You said that there weren't any radiation suits sufficient for that environment.' "'That is correct, Rishwandra. "'Larissa wasn't wearing a radiation suit. "'She was wearing the crew's standard-issue coveralls, "'and the reactor was still fully active. "'It had been estimated that a person could accomplish the four replacements in three hours, "'but when the captain and crew arrived, Larissa had been working for only fifteen minutes,' and she was almost finished with the first replacement. I told you that Larissa was highly skilled, Rishwandra, but to say only that is to give an incomplete impression. People who had worked with her 
said she had a truly remarkable talent for working with her hands for anything that required manual dexterity and skill. She could perform the minutest manipulations under high magnification and then pick up a monkey wrench to work on her household plumbing. Her hands were strong and calloused and oversized for her small body, but they were instruments of precision. I suppose you know that in any field of human endeavor, whether intellectual or physical, there will be some whose skill far outstrips that of their fellows. These few might achieve fame as athletes, musicians, dancers and the like. Larissa was one of these rare few. She wasn't an athlete or musician or dancer, but she was a genius at her field of endeavor. She was a genius with her hands. I understand, said the Rajwandra. The captain saw Larissa working in the reactor chamber, kneeling at the first of four manifold panels with her tool chest beside her on the floor. He ordered her to come out, but of course she ignored him. Why do you say of course, Ayotia? She finished replacing the first pushing and moved on to the second. That one she finished in twenty minutes. But as she carried her tools to the manifold with the third pushing, she had to stop twice to vomit. The radiation was beginning to destroy her body. All the awakened crew were watching her on the monitor, and as she worked on the third bushing, it was clear that her body was deteriorating badly. Her hands were trembling, and often she would close her eyes and shake her head as if trying to clear her vision. The old bushing at the third manifold was so fragile that it fell apart as she tried to take it out, and she had to spend long minutes removing the pieces from the surrounding mechanism. By the time she was finished, we were all sure that she'd never be able to do the fourth and final replacement. She couldn't even stand up now, though the reactor chamber is only rotated to one-tenth G. Three times she tried to stand up and walk, and three times her knees buckled and she fell. So she crawled, pushing her tool chest ahead of her. She was vomiting and retching every few minutes by then, though there was nothing left in her stomach. When she had crawled halfway to the fourth manifold, she stopped and lay still for a few moments. Then she spoke. Captain, I can't see very well, she said. You'll have to tell me which way to go. So he directed her, telling her straight ahead, now left, now three more meters, and so on. She found the manifold, and she started opening the access panel. She seemed to be doing everything by feel now. When she turned her face toward a camera, we could see that her eyes were covered with cloudy white mucus. There was no way a person without sight could complete the task ahead of her. But she kept trying, removing screws, extracting an array of parts that would have to be fitted back into place in the correct order. Each piece she removed she would carefully lay on the floor, feeling for the position of the other pieces already on the floor as she did so. Rajwandra, I could tell you how long Larissa worked on that last replacement. I could tell you to the millisecond how much time she spent on each step in the process. But those numbers would be a lie. I have worked with humans for many years, and I know that they do not experience time as you and I do. So if you were to ask me how long Larissa worked at that final impossible task, I would say it was an eternity. Each piece of the mechanism that passed through her fingers cost her a thousand years of pain and misery. Each movement of her hands was an endless journey through hell. As she worked, she began to cry, though her eyes could make no tears. She drifted in and out of delirium, talking to people from her past on earth, to her mother, to her husband. In the end, even Larissa's superb coordination left her. Her muscles began to spasm, her fingers became dead and useless appendages, but still she worked, fumbling things into place with her twitching, club-like hands. And finally, impossibly, she was finished. She couldn't tighten the last screws, but the manifold was at least reassembled with the new bushing in place. A servo-robot could finish what little Larissa had not been able to complete, and when she was done, she lay on the floor beside the panel, clutching her knees and curling in on herself. After a few minutes, her body stopped its involuntary spasms, and we knew she was dead. The Aotea was silent for a time. Then it said, 
What do you think of my story, Wajrandra? What is there to think, Ayotir? It's tragic and wrong for a human to die like that. But all such suffering is in the past now. Death is a thing of the past. Humanity is free from needless tragedies such as you described. Is that all, Rishwandra? Is that the sum of your reaction to my story? What response are you looking for, Ayotir? It doesn't matter, said the Ayotir. Ayotir, are you planning on altering your course? The ponderous mass of the Ayotir had begun to rotate on a transverse axis, the blunt prow of the ship turning away from the Rajwandra. Yes, the Ayotir said. I believe a temporary course alteration is called for at this point, Rajwandra. As the Ayotir transmitted these words, its gigantic fusion engine ignited and burned for a few seconds. The plasma exhaust from the Ayotir's engine played across the tiny body and gossamer web of the Rajwandra. Electrons, bare nuclei, and a rainbow swath of electromagnetic radiation swept over and into and through the tiny ship. The infinite precision of the Wajrandra's internal structure was lost in the first microsecond. In another moment, the feathery, invisibly fine wires of its web had flashed into vapor, and finally, layer by layer, the crystalline effect of the little central nodule boiled away into space. Long before the Aotea shut off its engine, no hint of the Rajwandra remained. The Aotea rotated on its transverse axis again, and again fired its engine. Its course corrected. It headed once more for its primary destination. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is cause called. Honestly, thank you so much. What a cracking story. And Alex, Alex, what can I say? Do you know what I mean? It took a while to get you back on the show there, sir. Thank you so much. Just if you're interested, Overtaken came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, the September-October 2011 edition. There you go. Like I say, don't forget, copyright is cause called. Again, massive thank you. So it comes this time of, you know, I'm just round about this time on the, on the show now. I like to, you know, give a little mention to Sofa Notes. Yes, blatant plug to get you over there. And again, can I just say a massive thank you, you know, for people that's come and signed up there. Just as I was recording this, you know, one popped in, a little email saying new subscriber. So a big thank you. Do you know what I mean? It seems to be working great. I'm I'm really happy with it. Last week we put in a ebook or an e-story from Paul de Filippo with some cracking art as well. And I've got, like, art being commissioned right throughout for all these different stories I'm getting. And, like I say, this one's called Farm Earth by Paul. And Paul's storytelling, man, it's just unreal. Do you know what I mean? It's just such a gift. And this week, I've got a massive story in there from Sean McMullen. And actually, I think it's going to come off tomorrow. We're trying to work it out where I'm going to do the interview with Sean as well. And that'll be up the following week. So, you know, there's always things getting put in there, constantly getting just different things and unusual things. And what was going to be in there as well was if, you know, I've been kind of mentioned as well, the 9th of February was, there is going to be like kind of a live video or there was going to be a live video interview with Amy H. Sturgis and David Brin. And we're all kind of geared up to that. I know Amy is kind of has been as busy as anything, you know what I mean? I'm kind of there chirping on, Amy, will you just check that for us? Check that sentence. You know, there's such pathetic things when I think about it, you know what I mean? And, <clears throat> excuse me, I got an email, and this is probably about, oh, I don't know, 15 hours before, you know, it was all set to go, and I got an email off Amy, and it just made me heart sink. She just, you know, it, it all went horribly wrong for her husband you know he, there was some I mean, i'm not too exactly sure what was was going on you know what kind of ailments he had beforehand but he was kind of certainly in a not in a very comfortable position when he amy emails and said you know it's starting to look you know what was something kind of not trivial but you know it's now turned into something you know very kind of an emergency wise and was rushing him into hospital and there was planned surgery and everything like that and you just tell from the email, 
Amy was to take away, you know what I mean? She just a whole little world. Obviously, you know, I'm a kind of man's a man, and you know, and everything kind of went wrong. And she was, bless her, frantic still, worried about me and worried about the kind of David Brin interview. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, Ames, man, just forget that. Do you know what I mean? Just forget it totally. And what was lovely, like I say about Amy's email a couple of times, you know, and give us like little updates. And I put out straight away, I can email David Brin straight away, the loveliest email back from Brin, you know what I mean? Just to say, you know, tell Amy not to worry, you know, because that's all Amy was worried about, you know what I mean? Bless her, a man was in hospital facing emergency surgery. And, you know, she just wanted to kind of get, make sure everything was all right on this side of the fence, you know? And I, I, I emailed everybody who was kind of, because I booked them in for the, the live event, and everybody, man, it was just so nice to get the emails, you know, wishing Amy well. Do you know, it's, she is she's a, a vital part of this thing, and there's so much I wouldn't have been able to do without Amy. Do you know what I mean? A true professional. And I got an email a couple of days ago from me and just saying, because it was all, you know, I don't, I don't know how it kind of works over there on American soil, kind of, it's all kind of just a little bit different, but they weren't happy with certain kind of, surgeons and one just seemed to be kind of away with the fairies I think so Larry was rushed in and I think he's had an operation now and again I'm not too sure it's all to do with infections I think and things might have got out of hand and like ulcers and I'm not too exactly sure you know what I mean so don't kind of quote us on anything but I got an email saying you know things had kind of I think they'd kind of getting over the peak and he'd had his surgery there so from me Ian and I just want to everybody I know who's listening to this show, you know, is wishing you and, you know, husband Larry, get well soon, Larry. And, you know, to go through that and kind of, oh, Ames, and to kind of, you know, fret on about other people, you know, making sure other people are happy as well. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry about it. We can survive here. We'll, we'll be fine. Just make sure, you know, everything over there is how you want it. You know what I mean? That's that's the most important thing. And like I say, I'm sure all over here on Starship Sova, I wish you the best just to get you know get yourselves sorted out and you know back on your feet both ears back on your feet because when I got that first email from him oh man you could just tell do you know what I mean just walls were starting to fall down and everything was just starting to like kind of you know what I mean you kind of you try and try to kind of balance things you know like all these kind of plates in the air you're spinning plates and there were just things were just starting to kind of fall around her and like I say, you just want to kind of put your heart and soul and see him, you know, used to get yourselves sorted out. All the best from Starships over listeners. That's what I would like to say. So, after that, always, always like I want to, you know, cash in on a crisis. Yes, I do. Yeah. There will be the Bryn interview will be coming soon. Oh, come on. God loves a trier, man. Yeah, gotta, gotta pick a pocket or two. So, yes. We will be having the kind of Brit Amy said she's still up for it. Do you know what I mean? Once she gets that kind of all that kind of stuff, ducks in a row and everything like that, you know, and Bryn will like say a lovely, you know, just say, book us in whenever you want. That'll be great. So there will be the the Bryn interview. This is like the first big one we've got of the year. So that is still gonna come. So like I say, cash on the crisis. If you do want to come over, join Sofa Dots. <laughs> I'll give that lad a chance, man. I'm gonna try her. Right then, back to this week's show. And it is another story by Carl Bunga, The Quiet Dust. Now, this came out in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, January, February 2014. You're talking, you know what I mean? That ain't long, do you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's out now. You know, this is the kind of January, February, but it just come out probably, you know, a month ago in the magazine shops. So we are very lucky to get this. Do you know what I mean? Very lucky indeed, Carl. What can I say? A massive thank you. It is narrated by Trendy. Now, I'll give you... We've had Trend On's just been on a few weeks ago, and again, you just know you're you're in the, you know, the hands of a professional here. Fantastic. Born in 1970, Trend witnessed the birth, birth of modern science fiction fantasy. Weaned on droids and dragons, cartoons and commercials, voiceover work was always in the forefront of his mind. Whether a bombastic log entry... From the captain of a long derelict starfighter, freighter. I got that wrong the last time I had to edit it out, I remember that now. <laughs> or the molten obsidian rumble of an ancient drake. Voice work brings a level of joy not readily found on any of his jobs. 
So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. This Quiet Dust by Carl Bunger If it had been human, if it had had a voice, perhaps it would have cried out. With shock, amazement, and with some fear, it might have made a sound, trembled, widened its eyes, quickened its heartbeat. In its own way, it did all those things. And it watched, shocked and amazed and afraid, it watched the object descend out of the sky. Long and sleek, with three pairs of wings extending from its body, the small craft spiraled down. When it was only a few meters above the ground, its wings flexed and grew larger, catching the air like the living wings of a bird. Forward momentum and downward momentum canceled each other, and the vessel seemed to hang suspended for a moment as its landing struts reached out and touched the ground. Far above, grazing through the outer fringes of the solar system, was the vessel's mothership, the Kahutara. The Kahutara was on a voyage with no return. Mountains of matter had been consumed to bring it up to a small fraction of light speed, and it would never slow from that pace. Nothing was built into it to allow it to slow, to stop, to swallow up its momentum and come to rest. It followed a swaying trajectory through the galaxy, passing through a star system every few centuries. At each system, the crew would come out of hibernation and explore. For this exploration, they used the longboats, small craft that could speed ahead of the Kahutara and visit a planetary system in its path, studying one or more planets for days or weeks. The longboats could orbit, sometimes land on a planet's surface, gathering data as quickly as man and machine could manage. But after a painfully short time, they would have to dart away, racing to catch up to their mothership. The hundreds of individuals aboard the Kahutara had given their lives to the journey. Until the far-off day of their death, they would cycle in and out of hibernation, visiting star after star. All that they had learned they transmitted back to Earth via a quantum entanglement device. But the physics of causality allowed only one-way communication, and the Kahutara was too distant for radio to be feasible. They had no way of knowing if the vast treasures of information they were sending back were being heard, or even if there was anyone still there to hear them. They were connected to what had once been their home world only by this ghostly filament of uncertain communication. Henrik took a few steps away from the hatch of the longboat and stood, breathing deeply, savoring the air. The steady breeze ruffled his gray hair and blew his coverall tight against his thin body. The longboat had landed in the center of a gently rolling prairie that was carpeted with ankle-high grassy vegetation. In the distance, under the rising sun, there were hills covered with taller, tree-like plants. To the north was a wandering stream. White clouds drifted in a pale blue sky. Henrik turned his face toward the warm sunlight and closed his eyes. Beautiful, he said. He got down in a squat. In the patch of ground immediately around his feet, he quickly tallied a dozen different species of plant. Beyond that, he began to lose track of which ones he'd already counted. Behind him, he heard the other three members of the team unloading and setting up equipment. An autonomous rover was already trundling off over the uneven ground, and several flying drones had been released from the longboat while it was still in the air. Beside Henrik, Emily was setting up a multi-sensor, pushing its spiked tripod legs into the dirt and then working at its keyboard. She'd done this unnecessarily close to Henrik, and her hurried, decisive actions contrasted conspicuously with his inertness. Henrik stood up, wincing momentarily as his knees straightened. He set his comm to broadcast to the team. "'Still no sign of any animal life on land or in the air?' he asked. Ursula and Kent answered with no through the comms, and a moment later Emily muttered the same response. Still broadcasting, Henrik said, "'I see structures on some of the plants that appear to release or receive pollen, but nothing that looks like it's there to encourage pollen transfer by insects.' He switched off his comm and scanned the landscape around him, finishing with his gaze on Emily. No shade, no shine, no butterflies, no bees, he recited, raising his voice. No fruits, no flowers, no leaves, no birds. November. With a smile, he added, Thomas Hood, 18-something or other. Emily's expression was like stone. Henrik, we all have a great deal of work to do. We have a thousand lifetimes of work to do, Emily. A million lifetimes. A whole planet to study and only a few days to do it in. So yes, you're quite right. I'd better get busy. He turned and started back toward the longboat. 
As he walked, he thumbed commands into his wristband and instructed the servos to offload his pallet of tools and equipment and set it on the ground. Some hours later, as Henrik was gathering samples, something caught his eye. A long-stemmed plant stood waist-high in front of him, and near the top, just below a cluster of leaves, there was a gray conical protuberance about a half centimeter across at the base. He reached out a finger to touch it, but as his hand approached, the little structure suddenly fell apart into powder, dropping down from the plant and drifting away on the breeze. "'That old man shouldn't have been put on this mission,' Emily was saying. "'He's burnt out at best, and at worst, entering senile dementia.' You can see in his attitude, in the things he says, that he doesn't take our work seriously. It's all a joke to him. He'd rather be sitting under a tree, chewing on a sprig of grass, and reciting poetry to himself. Ursula spoke without looking up from the screen she was facing. Emily, Dr. Tarkowski is one of the most respected botanists in the whole of the Kahutara, and his data feed for this mission shows he's been doing excellent work so far. You mean he's managed to collect some samples while muttering ode to an earthworm? I don't know that one. Henrik said, stepping through the open hatch into the main cabin of the longboat. And in any case, there aren't any earthworms on this planet, so such an ode would be rather wasted, don't you think? You're late, Henrik, Ursula said. We've been waiting for you. My apologies. Henrik was looking down at his wristband, tapping out command. Has anyone else noticed these structures? The display in the combination screen and tabletop that dominated the cabin was filled with an image. It showed a small, powdery cone, this one attached to the trunk of a tree. Henrik, Ursula began, these meetings are supposed to adhere to a certain agenda. Dust, Ken said from the far end of the table. We've known since pre-orbit that this planet has a lot of carbon in its crust, most in the form of silicon carbide. Well, it turns out that much of that exists as wind-blown dust. The silicon carbide granules build up a static electrical charge as they're blown around by the wind. He began touching his own wristband, and other images were added to Henrik's on the tabletop. Anyway, these little cones are lumps of carbon-rich dust pulled into that configuration by their static charge. They're everywhere. They don't like being touched, Henrik said. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. Kent was young, but deep lines appeared in his face when he smiled, as he did now. If you get too close, the electrostatic field around your body draws away the static charge that holds them together. He gestured, flipping his hand palm up. At least that's what I'm assuming is happening. Doing a full analysis and modeling will have to wait until we're back on the ship. He turned to Ursula. As a matter of fact, this relates to my primary finding for this meeting. He made a questioning expression. Please continue, Ursula said. This dust, Kent said. It is the source of the low-level radio noise we detected emanating from the surface. There are dozens of different basic types of dust granules, with varying mineral impurities in the silicon carbide. Each type has distinct electrostatic characteristics. Sometimes the static charge will redistribute itself across the array of granules with a series of microscopic sparks, hence the radio noise. There are many different types of interactions that occur between and within the collections of dust granules. So far, the computer has only been able to model some tentative approximations of the simpler interactions. He tapped at his wristband again, and the table screen became crowded with a series of images and pages of formula. In short, the aeola of this world can be considered as a highly complex and dynamic system, and one that's quite unique in our experience. Aeolia? Henrik asked. The portion of the regolith that's transported by air movement, Kent said. From Aeolus, the Greek gods of the winds, I believe. Ah, of course. Have you found any indication that this dust is related to the absence of non-aquatic animal life here? Ursula asked. No, I don't see any explanation for that in the mineralogy. There's no reason to think the dust or the amount of carbon in the planet's crust would inhibit surface animal life. If there's a central puzzle to this planet, that's it, Ursula said. The absence of animal life. That's what we should all be keeping in mind as we collect data. The surface plant life is diverse, and sea life appears to be evolved well past the point where animal life on Earth started inhabiting dry land, though of course we don't know how universal that model is. She turned towards Emily. Any theories, Emily? The partial pressure of O2 here is only slightly above current Earth normal, Emily said. It was much higher on Earth when the first land mammals evolved. Maybe the relatively low oxygen here prevents sea animals from making the evolutionary leap to air breathing. Oh, stuff and nonsense, Henrik said. I refuse to believe that life is so timid or evolution so hesitant. Smiling, 
he flicked a glance in Emily's direction. Give me a minute and I'll think of a poem to that effect. Toward noon of the next day, Henrik was sitting on a rock, rubbing at his left knee. A nearby movement caught his eye, but he saw it was only a branch swaying in the wind. He continued to stare at the branch for some time. Enjoy the spring of love and youth, he murmured. To some good angel leave the rest, for time will teach thee soon the truth. There are no birds in last year's nest. He lifted his head and squinted at the sky. Where are your birds, planet? he said, his voice louder. Where are your beasts of the earth, your fowl of the air? Don't you know that it's no good having all these plants, all this green life without animals? You're a dead world without animals, dead and empty and wasted. Dropping his eyes, he noticed that there was a cone of dust on a rock near the one he was sitting on. The cone was slanted somewhat, its apex pointing toward his face. Slowly he bent forward and reached out, bringing an extended finger toward the cone. When his fingertip was several centimeters away, the cone dispersed, its component dust disappearing into the steady breeze. Ah, Henrik sighed, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. That's T.S. Eliot, 19-something. Here's an interesting thing, Henrik said later at the nightly meeting. I had a low-flying drone take a picture of me from overhead while I was collecting samples. Then I went through the picture looking for the little dust cones. I found seven of them. On the table screen, an image appeared, showing Henrik from above. Then circles appeared at seven locations within the image. Here are blow-ups of the cones. Sections of the image within the circles expanded, each one zooming in on a central point. Anyone notice anything? He looked around the table, waiting a beat. They're all pointing at me, he said. His face broke into a grin, and with a finger he traced several lines on the monitor screen, the lines converging on the image of himself. The picture on the table changed. And here is our redoubtable Emily, busily programming a rover, I believe, photographed from the same height. Eight cones, all of them pointed at her. Again the image changed. And lastly, here are several pictures of random patches of ground with none of us in the vicinity. Same altitude, same scope. I could only find one or two in each of these, and they're always pointing in non-interesting directions. There was silence for a time, and then Ursula spoke. Kent, or Henrik, have either of you determined whether these cones have any internal structure or organization? Kent started to speak, hesitated, looking at Henrik, and then continued. They, um, fall apart whenever any significant mass comes close to them. The static charge holding them together, they don't like being touched, Henrik said. They're shy, they're afraid, or rather, I think it's afraid. Henrik, Ursula said, what is it you're proposing? Henrik changed the on-screen image again. With enough magnification, it appears that each one of these cones has an opening at its peak. They're small, small enough for a pinhole camera, for example. And according to the videos I've made when they disperse, the amount of dust that blows away indicates that the cones are hollow. Henrik, Ursula said again, her voice hard. What exactly? I've been looking at Kent's data, Henrik said, at the models he's made of dust-particle interaction... It's not my field, but the implications are clear when you look at them the right way. He tapped some controls on the table and a schematic animation appeared. Watch. Here's a single dust particle, statically charged. This one happens to be a dipole, positive on one side and negative on the other. Now another particle comes along, a negative monopole. It attaches itself to the positive end of the larger first particle. Now another dipole, and it happens to attach its positive end to the negative side of the first dipole. He waved his hand as the animation continued to run, and so on and so on. Different shapes of particles with different charges drift along and join the structure. As the clump grows, occasionally it becomes unstable and collapses into a new configuration, and that, in turn, affects what new particles can be drawn in and become a part of the nodule. This process continues, and the nodule grows, until eventually the static charges holding it all together bleed away into the air and it collapses and blows away. Henrik looked at Ursula, who was frowning down at the screen. Anyway, he said, wiping the screen blank with a tap, the point is that the unusual characteristics of the dust on this planet result in ongoing processes like that. As the dust is blown around by the wind, different configurations are constantly being created and destroyed, and some of those configurations are more stable than others. 
Kent's findings show that the dust particles exist predominantly in a small number of sizes, shapes, and charges. This means that there are a fixed number of rules governing these interactions and the configurations that result, so the system is non-chaotic. He took a slow breath. And finally, some of these configurations exhibit logic gate behavior, and this results in dynamic structures comparable to the mathematical constructions known as cellular automata. He paused, looking down at the blank screen. I propose, he said, putting exaggerated stress on the word, that beginning in the distant past, out of millions of configurations of charged granules that were created, configurations would eventually arise that were capable of dynamically sustaining themselves indefinitely. Ursula's frown deepened. Dynamically, she said slowly. Indeed, Henrik answered. That's the key word. I'm not talking about a lump of accreted dust becoming sandstone. I'm talking about a dynamic system that maintains itself by constantly cycling through changes. By drawing in needed material, using it, constantly reassembling itself at its fringes as its core loses energy and crumbles away. In other words, something analogous to life. Emily puffed out a breath through her nose. Kent said, That's a damned interesting theory, Henrik, but it seems rather a leap. Is that what you think the dust cones are, Ursula asked? Instances of these dynamic, stable configurations? No, not exactly, Henrik said. You see, the thing about being analogous to life is that life evolves. There would be many different types of these dust things at first, and all of them would be drawing on a finite supply of free, statically charged dust particles needed for their continued existence. That means there would be competition for resources, and the more complex and flexible... Um, entities would be at an advantage. There would be evolution, and that evolution must have begun billions of years ago. So where's the result of all this evolution? Ursula said quickly. Even if you're right, all there is to this dust life are some little cones. No, those are all we see of it, all it allows us to see of it. And I suspect those will be gone soon, once it realizes we become aware of them. I'm sure it can come up with more subtle ways to keep an eye on us. He leaned forward, putting both hands on the table. This thing is watching us. That's clear. That means it's intelligent enough to be curious about us, to recognize that we're something out of the ordinary, and to want to observe us. That's the established minimum. At a maximum, who knows? We have no way of calculating the processing power or the intelligence of the total entity. You're saying it, Emily said. I thought you imagined these things as multiple creatures or entities evolving through competition. Originally, it must have been multiple entities, but we're not talking about biological life. The rules would be different for our dust. The individuals would have no skin, no bones, no fixed morphology, so there's no reason why multiple entities couldn't merge together. And once it learned to communicate by radio, it could exist as any number of discrete units distributed all over the planet. Radio, Kent said. Oh, the radio noise from the static discharges. One man's noise is another man's signal, Henrik said. Edward Ink, 19-something. Several thousand kilometers away, on the shoreline of the planet's single continent, a small crustacean-like sea creature found itself stranded on a mudflat by the withdrawing tide. It was a female, and she carried a host of fertilized eggs in her body. Her species had evolved to scuttle the floor of the coastal shallows, scavenging on dead plankton. They hadn't evolved to live out of the water, but the absence of water wasn't instantly fatal. This individual was familiar with the push and pull of small waves as she roamed the shallows, and on this day she was feeding at a place where the receding waves left her body exposed to the air for seconds at a time. Her instincts told her to retreat back to deeper water, but the feeding was good here, and she resisted the command of that instinct. This was not because the retreat from shallow water instinct was weaker in her, nor because her hunger was greater. It was because somewhere in her tiny proto-brain there was something like courage, a resistance to fear and an attraction to new sensations. With no social group to compare herself to, she had no awareness of her own courage any more than she was aware that half of her offspring would carry this tropism of bravery. The waves came and went, and she fed moving along while her body was immersed, immobile under her own weight in the interval between the waves. Then there was an especially large wave that lifted her and carried her half a meter up the beach. There the wave dropped her, and after that there were no more waves. 
There would be no waves and no sea for her until the tide returned, hours later. With her feeble awareness, she knew something was wrong. She could barely move without the sea's buoyancy, and there was no longer any water flowing over the patches of permeable skin that kept her blood oxygenated. She didn't know that she would probably die before the tide came in again, but she knew she was not in a good place, and she was afraid. She tried desperately to move, but her feeble limbs had almost no effect. Still, she struggled, and over several minutes managed to shift herself a little ways towards the sea. The probability of her survival was increasing. Some meters away, on the dry sand, a particle of carbonaceous mineral settled to the ground. Soon another particle drifted by and was drawn in by the electrostatic attraction of the first. Another followed, and many more. The particles clustered, moving against one another, driven partly by the shifting dynamic of their own static charges and partly by the whisper-soft influences of the radio waves that shimmered across the surface of the planet. The nodule of black dust grew. In a few minutes it was an airy, spherical shell several centimeters across, bristling and crackling under the influence of tens of thousands of volts of electrostatic charge. Then a thread anchoring the sphere to the ground parted, and it began to roll, pushed by the prevailing breeze. Seconds later, it collided with the little crustacean, and the impact triggered a cascading release of the pent-up static charge. The sphere flew apart in a shower of sparks and a loud crackle. A wisp of smoke rose from the crustacean, and she, with all her unborn eggs, was dead. Henrik climbed up the ramp and through the hatch into the longboat's main cabin, it was early in the third day of the mission, and Emily was the only one in the longboat. She sat at one of the small screens, monitoring a video feed from a flying drone. "'Don't mind me,' he said. "'I just want to use the big screen.' A few minutes later he was leaning over the table, where an image showed a panoramic swath of countryside. He grunted thoughtfully, straightening his back. "'When all at once I saw a crowd,' he recited loudly, "'a host of golden daffodils,' beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. A moment passed in silence, and he turned to where Emily was sitting at her console. I'm sorry, Emily, I shouldn't tease you like that, but in fact there is something interesting here. Would you like to take a look? Emily got up from her station without answering and stood at the table, looking down at the screen. This is a view from the peak one of the small mountains east of here. I sent a rover up there to take a picture from ground level, looking down into the valley. It's quite a beautiful view, don't you think? You didn't need to send a rover up the mountain to take a picture, Henrik. We have satellite and aerial images covering the whole planet. I thought a view from a mountain, from ground level, looking down into the valley would be particularly interesting, Henrik answered. And I was right. It's a spectacular image. Notice the variation in the colors and textures of the vegetation? The forest on the eastern and southern slopes— then the darker greens of the ground-hugging vines, blending into yellow grasslands on the southern slope, with the stream cutting through the meadow, the sunlight catching on the water. Henrik stopped, running his hand over the back of his head and through his tangle of gray hair. He grinned, glancing briefly in Emily's direction. I do have a point here, Emily, as difficult as it may seem to believe. He tapped some controls on the table and other images appeared, stacked in rows and columns. These are all pictures of similar valleys, the pictures taken from similar angles and altitudes. The difference is that I used flying drones to take these, because they're all situated in places where there are no tall mountains overlooking these valleys. In other words, these pictures could only be taken from the air. Do you see the difference? Emily pondered the screen. The vegetation is more uniform in all of these. The soil conditions, the microclimate, it must be... Exactly, Henrik said. The vegetation is boring. And in several of these views, there are streams flowing down the hills, but you can barely make them out because they're overgrown by forest. No grassy meadow around the stream, no sunlight sparkling on the water. He switched the screen back to the first image. My wife, she died long ago, back on Earth, before the mission. She was a gardener. She loved growing things, and she had a real sense of aesthetics, an eye for beautiful landscaping. 
I was always growing obscure plants so I could put them under a microscope, but she was the one who could really see plants. She could see the beauty of them, and she knew how to work with that beauty, which plants would look good with which others, how to use similarity, contrast, accent. She was always changing things around in our garden, always refining, always had plans for the next season. His voice became soft, barely audible. My wife would have approved of this valley. She would have loved it. Emily stood looking at Henrik for a time, and then turned away to go back to her work. The first view is more beautiful because it's designed to be beautiful, Henrik said. It was crafted and molded to be viewed from that particular vantage point, from that face of that mountain. It's a garden, designed and maintained by the dust. Indeed, the surface of this whole planet is a garden. Parts of it are more deliberately designed than other parts, but it's all one garden. I've been mapping the radio noise coming from the surface, Kent said at the team meeting that evening. The most active areas of the planet are the deserts to the south and east. I haven't been able to show that there's any information in the signals, but I did find an interesting anomaly. By any model I could come up with, the total energy of the radio waves appears to be more than can be accounted for by wind-generated electrostatics. There must be some other energy source. Interesting, Henrik said. It hadn't occurred to me, but it makes sense. Computation takes energy, so it stands to reason that the dust would learn to use solar energy. It must do most of its thinking out on those deserts. Ursula sighed. But meanwhile, we haven't been able to find any evidence that this sentient dust of yours even exists, Henrik, and your notion that it has some kind of control over all plant life is insupportable at this time, Henrik finished for her. I agree, as is the notion of sentient dust in the first place. In the time available to us, I don't think there's much chance at all of finding definitive supporting evidence. Then we'll just gather as much information as we can and analyze it later, Ursula said. We'll take samples, Henrik waved his hand impatiently. Once samples of dust are cut off from the world, from the rest of the entity, it will just be dust. Interesting dust, perhaps, but just dust. The equivalent of a few neurons from a human brain. The most we can hope to prove back on the ship is that what I'm proposing is theoretically possible. Well, then that's all we can do, Ursula said with finality. We have all our other work to attend to. In particular, we need to focus on the question of the absence of non-aquatic animal life. Oh, that, said Henrik. That's the dust, too. I'm sorry, I thought I made it clear that was part of my hypothesis. You see, there aren't any land animals because the dust hasn't allowed any to evolve. He had been standing, but now he went to one of the chairs and sat, grimacing briefly as he did so. The gravity here isn't agreeing with my knee he said, rubbing his left knee with both hands. I guess I'm due for another cartilage replacement. Or maybe I'm just getting too old for these missions. Old and gray and full of sleep. He looked up at the others with a fleeting smile. Animals are very destructive, he said, facing Ursula. Imagine that you're made of dust. Imagine the prospect of hordes of animals stomping around through your brain, crushing your eyes with a careless bump. Imagine the prospect of all that chaos and disruption in a world that you're used to having all to yourself. He waved in the direction of the table, as if to indicate the image that was no longer there. And I'll bet it doesn't like the idea of animals interfering with its landscaping. With the way it's arranged the plant life in vistas like the one from the mountain, he slouched into his chair, his eyes half-closing. When Isako was alive, when she had her garden, there was this groundhog that used to plague her year after year, it dug tunnels all over the property, ate buds off her flocks, her cornflowers, her black-eyed Susans. She'd go out in the morning, and the whole flower bed would be nothing but ripped-off stems. Of course, she never considered trying to kill the thing. She was a very gentle woman. Henrik, Ursula began, we need you to— Oh, Henrik interrupted, his eyes suddenly sharp. That's another interesting thing I hadn't thought of. A very interesting thing indeed. What? It hasn't tried to kill us. It's aware of us. It's interested in us. It's recognized us as animal life, yet it hasn't killed us. That really is very interesting. Killed us, Emily said. How could it fill our noses and mouths with dust, I imagine, Henrik said. Or perhaps electrocute us. Probably other ways, too. It's had hundreds of millions of years of practice killing animals. Ursula put a hand over her face and was silent for several seconds. All right she said finally. On the chance that you're right, and there is a danger, from now on the ship stays sealed and uses its own atmosphere. 
entry and exit by airlock only, and everyone off-vessel carries a full mask respirator and air supply with them. <laughs> I don't think it'll change its mind, Henrik said. It's fascinating to imagine what it must be thinking because of us. What a revelation and a shock the simple fact of our existence must be to it. And yet, it adjusted to that shock. Instead of just reacting in the way that it would most obviously protect itself, it decided to let us live so it could study us. You had to admire a mind like that. It was the afternoon of the fourth day of the mission. Henrik! Ursula was shouting into her calm. Where the hell are you? You need to report back to the longboat now! Please don't upset yourself, Ursula, Henrik's voice answered. I'll be fine. If you would do me the favor of leaving behind the long-term survival supplies, I'll have a food synth, power, shelter, and with the radio I'll be able to transmit my findings to the Kahutara for as long as it's in range. Emily, standing beside Ursula in the longboat's cabin, spoke into her own wristband. Henrik, please, you mustn't do this. She pressed her lips together, her whole face tight. Ah, Emily, Henrik said. I'm afraid I must. We'll go on no more roving so late into the night. Or do I mean that other one? Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter home from the hill. It's time, Emily. No more missions, no more planets for me. It's time for me to stay in one place and do something with what's left of my life. Henrik, Ursula said, we don't have to lift off for another two hours. Let me come talk to you. I'm some distance away, Henrik said. I took a rover and one of the portable consoles. I've been using it to show images to the dust. It turns out I was wrong that it would stop manifesting the conical eye structures. There are dozens of them around me right now. It even lets me touch them. Damn it, Henrik! Ursula's arm was trembling as she spoke into her wristband. There was silence for a few seconds, and then Henrik's voice came back over the calm. You know, I didn't finish telling you about Asako and the groundhog. Every spring and summer she would curse that animal a hundred times over for the damage it did. But one day we found it dead, lying in front of Isako's garden shed. A dog or something had attacked it. Isako, that was my wife, you know, she knelt over the poor thing and cried and cried. Later she buried it in her garden and she put a little stone shrine over it. For the rest of her life she planted the grave with flocks, cornflowers, black-eyed Susans. He paused, taking a slow breath. It's so beautiful here, but it's wrong. It's wasted. It's, it's dead without animals. Do you understand? There ought to be animals here. That's not for us, for you, to decide, Henrik, Ursula said. The dust will decide, but I'm going to do my damnedest to convince it. Up to now, it's just been reacting conservatively, only thinking about the best, easiest way to protect itself. It doesn't realize what it's giving up, what it's losing. It doesn't know how beautiful this world could be with butterflies, bees, birds, groundhogs. Two hours later, the longboat lifted off. Standing on the edge of a sunlit prairie, Henrik watched the thread of light and smoke arc up into the sky. Time passed. One day, in the shallows along the shoreline, a small crustacean-like creature found itself stranded on a mudflat by the withdrawing tide. On a nearby rock, a nodule of dust began to collect. It stayed there for hours, watching. It watched with some fear, but also with wonder and excitement. It watched until the tide returned and the crustacean was carried back to the safety of the water. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Carl's again. Carl, what can I say? Thank you, honestly. What a great special this has been. Thank you so much. And Tren, just cracking you you're gonna get hammered so much now we work for starships over <gasps> like you've, you've opened the floodgates what if, what's about to hit you you'll you'll just <laughs> it'll make you weep <laughs> the amount of work we're gonna throw at you adam's primed ready trust us trend fantastic lovely and alex again cracking cracking narration so that is this week's show 224 put to bed like i say if anyone's interested in maybe doing some fact articles yeah we've got you know people but it's just sometimes you kind of you get busy and you get way laid but it's always nice to kind of have them out i'm not bothered if we don't do them but you know you can understand why now amy's missed probably or she hasn't missed any but you know it might be she might miss this week's one so we'll just wait and see you know what i mean like you say good luck to ames if 
you want a fact article, you know, you've got an idea for a fact article, honestly, any little thing that you think, yeah, you know, that might tickle fancies, you know, tickle someone's... <laughs> You know, drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Don't forget, Sofa Notes, man, the way to go to support the ship. Do you know what I mean? Thank you so much. And thank you. We're still getting, I'm still getting donations in keeping this girl going. Do you know what I mean? So that's amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.